Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is a talk I did at Capital City Christian Church in Jefferson City, Missouri on women in leadership. I approach the issue from a holistic perspective of the problem of the curse of the fall and how that relates to gender and then how that's resolved through Christ. Well, thank you, Trent, and uh, I very much enjoyed everybody else's uh, talk here. My adult life, most of my adult life was spent in Japan. And the roles of men and women, you know, we're talking about roles, you immediately realize in another culture, it is determined culturally. That women, we might say, uh, in one sense, in Japan are relegated to the home. But what the home means is something very different because the home is inclusive of the finances. So women, in fact, are the primary players of the stock market in Japan. And so housewives, they do use that term, housewife. My wife never wanted me to call her that in Japanese, but actually I always thought, well, that's a fairly powerful position, isn't it? They are the decision makers in regards to the children's education. And saying all this, I think our perception of Japan is that it is a very chauvinistic society in many ways, but even that can mean something very different in in a different culture. And so when it comes to the roles of men, Actually, men are very disappointing in Japan because their role is to bring home the money. One of the highest divorce rates in Japan, strangely enough, that divorce has never been a huge problem, is among older Japanese couples because the man retires and the woman, there's a phrase in Japanese, well, it's time to take out the garbage. She means the husband. He's really not worth much now because he bought home the money and he's not doing that. The idea Faith and I encountered after 20 years, and I came from a very complementarian sort of view, but even that doesn't, it doesn't translate. We were in a very conservative, non-instrumental church in Japan. And before I came, a woman was the preacher there. And after we left, in fact, she once again took up preaching duties. Along there were some men that did it for a while. Uh, A woman was the primary leader of the church. We didn't call her the elder, but for all practical purposes, she was the elder of, of the church. And women served communion. But of course, that meant something very different in Japan than it would mean here. That just always happens, I think, in most all churches in Japan. And so women missionaries, my wife, my my wife's family dates back to uh, her great-great-grandfather was friends with Raccoon John Smith. And her grandmother was an ordained preacher in the Christian churches. Her and her husband were evangelists all over the United States. And so it's a kind of a strange phenomena that's occurred, that it's occurred almost that there is a kind of conservative backlash in certain places that even the generation of, you know, our parents and my my parent, my father was born 
by the way, in 1911, so when I saved my parents. It, there's a very different feel about it. Her aunt was the first president, first female president of our National Missionary Convention. And so women have played a key role in my life, but in the Bible, in missions, and in the spread of the gospel. The other experience I've had in a, a bicultural setting I've spent a time in England getting a PhD, and there it's also, you know, what a man and a woman, the, the, to talk about those roles, it means something quite different. My PhD work has focused then on Romans 6 to 8, and part of Romans 6 to 8, I think that a, an understanding of Romans chapter 7 is that Paul is going back and giving us a reading of the early chapters of Genesis. And that's why this is going to play a key role in the research that I've done. And that is that Romans 6 to 8, theologically, is probably the center, not in importance, but theologically, of our New Testament. You know, there is the summation of whatever it is we mean to, to be saved as a Christian. And my work has involved also the psychoanalytic implications of what it means to, to be in Christ. And so I believe we can state in terms of gender and in terms of psychology, specifically what the result of sin is in our lives. I think it's there in the Bible. And by the way, the psychoanalytic literature that I deal a lot with most all of these guys are Marxist, materialist, atheists who believe that Paul in Romans 7 captured the human predicament. In fact, when I first came, I came to the United States back in uh, 2005. And that year there was a conference in New York City, a conference on the Apostle Paul. The people participating in the conference were atheists. But what they were saying is, well, psychoanalytically, what Paul is saying in Romans 7 is precisely what Lacanian theory, Lacan is a Freudian psychoanalyst, what Lacan is saying about the human predicament. I won't bore you with the psychoanalytic literature, but what we're describing then of the human predicament uh, has been very much appreciated by psychoanalysts, in, at least in a, a French psychoanalytic understanding. I believe that we can state in terms, those two terms, gender and psychology, not only what it means to have failed, to be fallen, what it means to be sinful, but what it means to be restored, our image restored in the image of God. That, to my mind, is the sweep of Scripture that man's image is marred, we're fallen. You know, I wouldn't say the image is completely lost because the potentiality is there for the image to be restored. And then the movement of scripture is the restoration of the image. And I don't, by this, I don't mean to limit it to a return to Eden. But what I mean by that is that the potential of Eden is fulfilled in Christ and the image restored in Christ. And so the Genesis material does play into this, but it is not decisive because I think already in Genesis, 
what is being pointed toward is what will be fulfilled in Christ. Even the language, you know, the idea of Adam, the man, Eve, the woman, well that ultimately we come to understand what that language means in Christ in the church. What I'm going to do is talk about salvation, redemption, reconciliation, as a restoring of our gendered image. I think that our identity as men and women, then, is really what is at stake in this understanding. The issue of complementarianism versus egalitarianism, I think it touches on the problem. But what I fear is that what may be missed in reducing it to gender roles is the holistic nature of both the problem and the solution. It's bigger than this. It's bigger than simply the roles of men and women. It certainly pertains to this. And so a primary result of sin is oppressive alienation. That alienation is there between God and man. It's between the man and the woman. It's there between the man and creation. This oppression between male and female is actually one of the key themes that will be worked out in both the Old and the New Testament. What I'm doing is just saying we need to rethink what we mean by salvation. Salvation is the defeat of sin, right? It's the defeat of sin and death. Not to limit it to that, but certainly it is that. Biblical salvation is an undoing of the curse of the fall. Egalitarianism versus complementarianism, I'm afraid in isolation, does not capture the fact that male-female relations cannot really be understood apart from a right understanding of who God is, because that's the image that we're created in. Gender reflects the divine image. The failure of the image and its restoration, or just to state it, in the broadest terms, the human predicament and the resolution to the predicament, it certainly pertains to the role of women in church leadership. It pertains to relations between husband and wife. But these issues are only, I think, the end point of the real world reconciliation and the focus of the narrative sweep of Scripture. My fear is that in focusing on gender and speaking about it in the way that we're talking about it, that in fact we may have skewed the whole point of the sweep of, of Scripture. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 to 2. And there, you know, we often say that in the beginning, who gets created? Is it a singular individual? And of course, we all know that's not the case, right? But unfortunately, I think that the focus of our understanding of what salvation is focuses upon the isolated individual. Souls going to heaven, you know, when we die. But the original image of God is what? Two. It's a plurality. It's male and female. Let me put a footnote here real quick. 
I'm going to talk male, female, I'm going to talk marriage, I'm going to talk sexuality, but understand that most of this I'm using it is as a motif for talking about salvation. In other words, I'm not making pronouncements, oh, women should be married, and you know, uh, that's not the point of it. But it is the, the motif then in which scripture unfolds the very meaning of salvation. And so the implications, what are the implications? God says, let us, that's very commonly understood to be a Trinitarian understanding, even if it's not there in the Hebrew, in the, in the Old Testament, that's certainly the way that the New Testament is going to reflect back on that creation event. That is that male-female is in fact a reflection of who God is in Trinity. And so we bear the image of God as, you know, Paul's going to talk about this in 1 Corinthians. And in those long passages, a lot of the passages, in fact, that are going to be the focus of complementarianism, one of the things that he's going to discuss is, well, if you miss male-female, you miss God. And if you miss God, you miss male-female. This is, again, an outworking today, you know, some of those who are defending complementarianism, they've gone so far to reinstate the heresy of subordinationism in the Trinity. That's precisely what Paul says, no, that's not the point here. So we bear the image as a plurality, and that plurality is male-female. And this means that we are image bearers. You know, once you've said this, once it's male-female, we've said that it's an embodied image. That is, that our image bearing is not some capacity inside of us, but it is holistic. It concerns everything about what we are in terms of embodiment, in terms of drives, in terms of human, certainly human desire, human sexuality, but all of the appetites, not any particular one, just what it means the body or embodiment, that is our imaging capacity. And so once you say that, we understand then that the body is not the enemy of the spirit. And in fact, it cannot be separated from the spirit. So I think a lot of what we're working with and fighting against is a kind of dualism between body and spirit and going to heaven when you die. And salvation then is often depicted in a way that I think is not true to the Bible. And I think that the whole, this whole issue revolves around that dualistic kind of heresy, I would call it. Now, once we've said it's male, female, then we're also fallen corporately. This would be the big discussion in the history of especially Western theology. What does it mean to be fallen? Paul, in the passage that in Romans chapter 5, states it quite simply, that we're found corporately in Adam. Now, unfortunately, Augustine had a Latin translation of Romans 5, and he misunderstood what Paul is saying there. Paul is not saying people are born sinful. He's not saying that there's some sort of original sin. But what he's describing is what the Old Testament is describing, 
that in fact corporately we are fallen. Would anybody deny that? We're fallen culturally. We're fallen in our families. We're fall in other words, what it means to be human is to be a part of a corporate body of a plurality of persons and it's precisely in that sense that we're all to be found in Adam. If you question this, you know, go back and look at, I think it's chapter 5 of Genesis and he's talking about the lineage of the first people and he says, you know, Adam was created in God's image and likeness. Seth is in the image of Adam. You know, you don't have to be a, a believer to know that. We're all in the image of the people, that, of our families, of the people around us. It's not that we inherit sin. This was Augustine reduced that inheritance to some sort of mystery. You know, like, oh, it's sex, or it's, he really didn't know what it was. Calvin will do the same thing. What I'm saying is, no, we, can, we know how we got this way. Because we're born into fallen cultures, fallen families. We're corporately fallen. Now this is important to say it this way, because how are you saved? Uh, I think that we've reduced that then to a kind of individualistic. Oh yes, I've accepted Jesus into my heart. I'm going to heaven when I die. I had a wonderful student. He was a drug dealer, was a good Baptist, reading his scripture between drug deals. He was, you know, he wanted to keep up his spiritual life. What he discovered was that this was in fact a form of theology that is death dealing. That is that Christ addresses our problem in a real world sense, that we're fallen and if we just make salvation about going to heaven in the future, I'm afraid we've missed the Bible. That's really not what's taking place in the New Testament. So we're fallen corporately, well, then how do you get saved? You join a new body. You join a new family. You're adopted by a new father. You enter an alternative marriage relationship between Christ and the church. And so salvation is being incorporated into this new body. That's now, right? We don't have to wait for that. Salvation is not a future event, simply that. I'm not taking away from the future culmination of salvation. But salvation is a transformation that is happening, hopefully, here and now. And the way that's happening is that we become a part of this new body, the body of Christ. And Paul will indicate in 1 Corinthians the relationship between men and women restored. He's talking about right relations reflects who God is as Trinity. And the implication of what he's saying throughout Corinthians. The Corinthians are messed up, right? These are people that are really confused. And the way he's trying to straighten out their understanding is to have them recall who God is and what it means to be in Trinitarian relationship. When you think of the image of God, first of all, we understand that an image is a reflection, right? Part of what it meant to be in the image of God, and Paul will say as much in the various places when he's talking about this image, is that the original pair 
understood who they were because of God's presence in that relationship. That is, the man is through the woman, the woman is through the man, and the two are one in and through God. That's not just the marriage relationship. It is that, certainly it's that, but it's the human relationship. The way that we're unified in the body of Christ, the way that I just think any two people become unified, united, friends even, is the Holy Spirit is there, God is there. And so we understand who we are, our image properly, from a divine perspective. And this is important because when you lose the divine perspective of what it means to be human in idolatry, it perfectly illustrates what it's like to see things not from the perspective of God, but from a human perspective. I'll come back to that in a minute. So let me sum up here. To say that humans bear their humanity, spirituality, in and through male and female, means that the whole sweep, and this is the reading I'm going to give you this morning, that the sweep of scripture then is the fall, is alienation in that relationship, and reconciliation and salvation is a bringing about of the potential that was always there in that relationship. One of the curses of the fall, and I'm going to claim this is one of the enduring curses, that, you know, what is it that we've lost the image? Again, I think we mystify a lot of this. You know, we can talk about human abilities or various things, but it's very simple what it means, that it says that man will oppressively rule over women and women will masochistically succumb to this rule. That's my understanding of Genesis 3.16. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. God's not prescribing that. He's saying that is a result of your sin. And the oppression then can be seen. And I think we need to say this, that it can be seen throughout human history. The treatment of women though, today in churches, I'm afraid is a continuation of that curse. You could just look up any church. So Christian churches, and by this I mean Catholic, Protestant, or any particular denomination. I just don't think anybody's off the hook here. We're in the midst of pervasive sexual uncovering of sexual abuse and scandal. I mean, I just assume that if you've got a church over so many people, you're going to have you've got problems. And if you think you don't have problems, you've got a really big problem. <laughs> sexual abuse is uh, pervasive. Certainly it's pervasive in the culture, but it seems that Christianity is not addressing the problem, but in fact, Boz Chavigian I hope I'm saying his name right. He's actually the grandson of Billy Graham. And he has started an organization in Florida. He was a prosecutor in Florida. And sex crimes in churches just came up so much that he realized that he, and so he started, a, uh, it's called GRACE, and it's an acronym for what they're doing. And he says, well, the problem is probably worse in churches. And he's saying this, because of his own experience, then outside of churches. 
So it's not just that Christianity is not addressing it in many instances, it's aggravating the problem. I don't think we can talk about the role of men and women without saying, oh, there's a failure. The church has failed. No one particular church. And Chavigian says, oh, you think it's the Catholics? He says it's just as bad across the board. The thing, the difference is Catholics are organized and keep statistics. And by the way, I'm going to use Southern Baptist statistics. Same problem. Southern Baptists are very organized. They have statistics. Christian churches, no statistics. And what that means is that you can be a serial criminal in our institutions and quietly move to another place. And I know that's happened. So I'm not picking on, on anybody here. I'm just finding the statistics where I've, I've found them. What Chavigian, what many have pointed out, is the churches promoting women's subordination to men have particularly aggravated the problem. Sexual abuse, I'm quoting him, is the most underreported thing that occurs as much in or the church as outside of it. With sexual abuse and evangelicalism rivaling that of the Catholic churches. And so the churches are, we're in an epidemic. I mean, we just have to acknowledge that this thing is here. To just give you an idea, just take statistics from the World Health Organization. Remembering that whatever true of the population in general, it's the same in the church or it's probably worse in the church. One in five women will be raped in their lifetime. One in four women, or 24%, and one in seven men age 18 and older in the United States have been the victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner. A study by Abel and Harlow, and actually I'm getting this off of Chavidian's website, they say that 93% of sex offenders describe themselves as religious and that this category of offender is in fact the most dangerous because, and this is again Boz, he says because the studies have also found that sexual abusers within faith communities have access to more victims and younger victims. A joint investigation by two newspapers, and this is uh, uh, revealing that over 200 Southern Baptist pastors, youth pastors, deacons were convicted or took pleas for sex crimes over the past 20 years. Estimated 700 victims then, just of these people. And if you consider that the vast majority of rapes in the United States never lead to a felony conviction, these numbers suggest astronomical levels of violence. So women and girls in particular can be silenced in hierarchic churches that teach complementarianism because the belief that, well, God ordains male authority, especially in the church and home, and having been conditioned not to question men, some women then struggle to stand up to male misconduct. And when they do, they're often dismissed. Oh, well, you're just a woman. A key example, and again, I'm not picking on the Baptists, it's just that this has come out with them more recently. Paige Patterson, who is the Southwestern Baptist theological president, this came out in the same period, 
a girl, a teenage girl, I think she was 16, she came out and she reported abusive uh, behavior of her youth minister. And he said, well, the, this is biblical. It's okay. Then they went on to ask him, well, what about abuse in marriage? And he said, well, it depends, you know, on the level of abuse. There'll be some, to some degree. And of course, this, even among Southern Baptists, created such a furor that Southern Baptist women then gathered a petition in protest of his comments. Now, he's the president of the seminary. So he's not some backwoods preacher. He's an informed theologian. And again, we can cite information from our own experience. I think we all know of events that have happened in Christian churches, people in prison, rightly so, they should be in prison, that were preachers. Uh, the statistics just aren't there. That's a grander tragedy than having the statistics. Beth Moore, who is a Southern Baptist speaker and author, she wrote a blog a few weeks back that's gone viral just describing misogynistic treatment that she's received. She says, I've been in team meetings, and as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of my wife, because I know she could repeat verbatim what Beth Moore is describing. I've been in team meetings where I was either ignored or made fun of. No criminal offense. Her encounter, she says, with misogyny, objectification, and astonishing disesteem of women was one of the most demoralizing realizations of my adult life. I think she's in her 60s. And so she's looking back at her life. She's not given up on the Southern Baptists. She herself has said it's too much. Moore says, I've ridden elevators in hotels packed with fellow leaders who were serving at the same event and not been spoken to. And even more awkwardly, in the same vehicles where I was never acknowledged. It's dehumanizing is what she's saying. In one especially grievous encounter, and she doesn't name the man, but a theologian, someone that she had admired all of her life. She had read all of his books. And she said, now I'm getting the opportunity. She's going to meet him personally. She's very excited. They were going to have dinner. And she just envisioned, you know, that they would discuss theology. She says, the instant I met him, he looked me up and down, smiled approvingly and said, oh, you're better looking than some other woman. She concludes, scripture was not the reason for the colossal disregard and disrespect of women among many of these men. It was only the excuse. Sin was the reason. I think we could state it even stronger. It's evil. My wife has been subjected to evil. And when we voiced objection, well, I'm no longer at that place. Let me talk a little bit what, about what Beth Moore is describing that I think is characteristic of sin in the Old Testament, in Old Testament idolatry. Idolatry may seem a long way to go in talking about the image, but remember, what is the word idol? Selim, right? It's just the word image. And so what's happening in idolatry, we become the image makers. God is not the image maker. 
Idolatry, to sum it up, is objectification of and alienation from the other. The idol is literally an object. I didn't write these scriptures down because many of the scriptures are nearly pornographic. Go to Ezekiel as it's describing what is an idolater usually referred to. An adulterer, right? And what is the situation of idol worship depicted as? An illicit love relationship. Now, if you've ever done any study of idolatry, you understand that the depiction in Ezekiel, which is peculiarly graphic, I don't recommend preaching on this particular passage, but we're adults, you know. It's a phallic image. It's a phallus. Now, whether it was literally, I don't know. But in Japan, I know that there are literally phallic images some of them graphically so, some less so, some you don't know that that's what they are. So that it's not simply a metaphor for idolatry, this is what idolatry is. And what is being pictured? The idol worship is the female adulterer, and the idol is male. Are they going to have a happy relationship? They ain't going to get together, right? And so what is depicted in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, a result of the idolatrous scene is the increase of desire, giving rise then to human sacrifice. They're going to sacrifice their children. They're going to sacrifice people to this lust, to this desire. And lust here, you know, are we talking sexuality? It's not clear. We've really moved to something even more basic, haven't we? When we talk about alienation from God and creation, alienation with self, this is what Paul is referring to, I think, in Romans 1. Paul is, is referencing this early history. He's saying, well, look, this is the way this worked out, that you have toilsome oppression. It's always oppression, oppression and work. There's murderous relations. You know, think of Cain and Abel. Do you know who comes after Cain and Abel? It's Lamech. Yeah, he's a murder rapper. Ada and Zilla, I've killed me a young man. A young man I have slain. I don't know, what did he do? Maybe stepped on his toe at the movie theater. He's bragging about his murders. He's, he's writing poetry about his murders. And, of course, he is representative of the generation of Noah. They're psychopathic killers. Right? And, of course, the sexual misorientation that we know is there with them is just part of the mix that's taking place. When you get to Babel, and this is my reading, maybe somebody will correct me here, but in my understanding, there is no, at least in our Hebrew Bible, the copies of the Old Testament that we have, between Lamech and Babel, there's no idolatry. But what happens at Babel? Suddenly the idols are everywhere. That is, the religion becomes organized. And so too, I think what Paul is describing as a flowing out of idolatry. And so, if nothing else, what does Christianity, or even Judaism, what was it supposed to deliver us from? Idolatrous religion, right? In which there is this objectification, 
a gendered objectification and alienation through a binary pair. The binary is acting as a mode of identity. And I think that's true with the fall of Adam and Eve. I think that's true at Babel. You know, how do you do identity once you fall from God? It's through the knowledge of good and evil. The good over and against the evil, you need the binary pairs. Male-female will function as one of Paul's binaries in Galatians 3.28. What is salvation then? The original image is fallen and the restored image is male-female unity. The idolatrous image, absolute male-female separation. Because it's functioning as an identity, understand. You need an absolute separation to have an absolute identity. Idolatry is this ever heightened desire, but is it simply, you know, Paul spreads this out in Colossians, that he's going to say that desire, in fact, is idolatry. He's going to reverse it. Idol problems are not just the people who have idols, we all have idol problems. We are idol makers is the way that Paul will depict it. And so we become the originators of the image and we can no longer see ourselves as God sees us. I would say there's a loss of real personhood. And this is why I think we can talk about Christ as the truly human one. Here's someone who has true humanity. You know, when we say the image, I think sometimes we get off into theological abstractions. No, you're just not fully human. But Christ is fully human. And that's what we're being restored to. Salvation delivers us from this slavery to desire. Paul says in Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, Sex is always there, right? Evil desires and greed. But what is all this stuff? Which is idolatry. So the ultimate sacrilege, I'm afraid, occurring in our churches is the sacrifice of women and children, clearly the outworking of the fall, very much characteristic of Moloch worship, but it's being done in the name of Christ. So authentic Christian salvation is aimed at curing this oppressive curse. The curse is with us, specifically as it relates to gender. And there are numerous metaphors that describe reconciliation and salvation through restored gendered relations. The wedding feast of the Lamb. This is the closing chapters of Revelation. Everything's restored. Israel and the church. You know, Israel is the first bride and God is the groom. And of course the church then will take the place of Israel and become the bride and Christ the groom. The depiction of oneness of marriage. The man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one. But, and this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. There's the whole sweep of scripture summed up. There's the promise and its fulfillment. So gender problems are at the center of the human problem and salvation is depicted in this key motif as the completion of that promise. 
Now to understand this, uh, how unity, one flesh with Christ, can be a cure, you know, almost you need to go to Genesis chapter 2. We need to realize the account in chapter 2 gives us an interior view of what's happening. You know, Genesis 1 is kind of a God's eye view. Genesis 2 is uh, a perspective, an earthly kind of perspective. It clues us in. I think that all of the elements there, you know, when we say what is the image of God, well, I guess it just includes the things that are there in Genesis 2. I think you could include the garden scene, the garden itself, earth, the woman being brought to man. Certainly, you know, he's incomplete and he's complete. And the way the church has read this historically is that this is the fulfillment of the potential of creation. Karl Barth calls this the secret of creation. When the woman is brought to man, because he's wounded and out of his side, we really don't know what's there, but, uh, and of course the imagery is that fulfilled in the wounds of Christ and the birth of the body of Christ, the church. And so in the early chapters of Genesis, even in chapter 2, is the pointing toward the fulfillment to be had in Christ. And so the garden scene, with all its elements, I think, is what it takes to make humankind. Now I'm reading this in a kind of unusual way, because what I'm saying, and this is the way the early church fathers read it, Gregory of Nyssa and others, they'll say, well, creation is only completed in Christ. And so we're still in the midst of the unfolding of the potential that was there. And so I think this explains why the marriage supper of the Lamb, that is the culmination of human spirituality, right? It's depicted in a fulfilled marriage relationship. The culminating wedding feast is the reconciliation of humankind with God. If you go to Revelation, it's just reconciliation between persons, interpersonal. You know, this is Paul's reading, I think, of Genesis in chapter 7. Where does this alienation penetrate ultimately? Oh, it's inside of you. You're in an agonistic struggle with yourself. And your alienation from others is simply an expression of your inward alienation. And that's resolved, of course, in chapter 8. By the way, the, all the psychoanalysts, they don't read Romans 8. They only read Romans 7. So. So, resolution to the problem of gendered relations through Christ as groom and the church as bride, that's not just part of the biblical story. That is the biblical story. If we miss this, we've missed the whole thing. Redeemed humanity is the bride of Christ. This I'm thinking, thinking here of Romans chapter 7, 1 to 4. What Paul is describing there, what's the failure of humankind? Marriage gone bad. He's using an illustration. He's not saying literally it's that. But he's saying it's like a woman who would consort with another man who is not her husband. What's he talking about? He's not really talking about marriage. He's just talking about our orientation to the law. And the husband there functions as a emblematic of the law. He's authoritarian. He determines everything. And then he describes the move out of relationship. By the way, I don't think it's a problem with simply the law. It's our orientation to the law, right? 
we would read life into the law. But then he de describes then the move out of that system into the marriage relationship to Christ. He describes a unity in which we become pregnant. With what? As redeemed humanity, we become pregnant with love. It's a beautiful imagery. Now we're a little bit Puritan in all this and we probably don't hear it preached that way. But that's the way that Paul wrote it. And so the attempt to gain control as an orientation to the law, that's the human condition. It can be either authoritarian or it can be a kind of passive submissive role. He describes both in the passage. What happens to that? You know, you can misunderstand what happens. Does the woman shoot her husband in the head to get rid of him so she can consort with another man? Do we destroy the law? Is the law abolished so that we're free in Christ? That's the parallel. No. The law is not the problem. The problem is our oppressive orientation to the law. And the law then, the language there, is that it's suspended. That is that punishing orientation which I believe is the description in chapter 7. That's not the normal Christian life. That's hell on earth. And this is the grand tragedy. What I'm describing to you is a good portion of our churches read Romans chapter 7, 7 and following as if this is the Christian life. No, that's not the Christian life. That's what it's like to be torn apart by alienation and sin. And so that's suspended. Being found in Christ. That's what the picture is there in Romans 7, 1 to 6. Brings an end to the agonistic domination and submission. And so authority, and I, uh, we certainly got that picture rightly, is undone. I think we've got images of authority and we just carry that over into the church. Oh, that's not authority in biblical sense. That's sin. That's the practice of evil. That is suspended. And so salvation is a real world gendered reconciliation. This is the way Paul pictures it in 1 Corinthians. And that's what he's talking about, by the way, in the, the passage in chapter 11. Male, female is not an oppositional difference. We don't do identity through this difference. It's interdependence. Neither is woman, Paul says, without man, nor man without woman. They are from and through one another. And this interdependence holds together through God. Galatians 3.28. He does the, a similar thing in both passages. He will combine all of the major motifs for salvation in Galatians 3.28. You know, it's gender, male, female, it's class, slave, free, it's ethnicity, Jew, Gentile. That's just the three ways of describing the human predicament and its solution. And these three things then function in every case as certainly binaries, binary opposites. Think here of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How do you know what evil is? Over and against the good. What's the good? Over and against the evil. That means the evil inheres in the good and the good in the evil. Yin yang. Yin yang is the big circle. Trenton knows all this. He's sitting in my class. And in the middle of the yin yang circle is another and there's two sides. 
but on inside of the circle there's two tiny circles. The yin is in the yang and the yang is in the yin. Is that the way that we do good and evil? No, we know what good is because of God. God is our reference point. We are not the reference point, but when we become the reference point, we naturally fall into this binary opposition. And that's the way we do identity. And so Paul is just giving us the sweep of scripture here. He's saying that it's no longer any of these things. But these things, we've got to understand, this is foundational. This is foundational for the way we think. It's our logic. It's, it's almost inescapable. We live in a world where the knowledge of good and evil reign as a system. This is undone. This, by the way, I think is the great discovery of post-modernity. I'm not a post-modernist. But they recognize the way we do knowing, understanding, is through binaries. That's the language. I, I did a master's degree in linguistics. That's the way language functions. If we do identity on the basis of human language, we fall into binary identity. We got nothing else. But that is undone in Christ. Think here a minute. You know, how do Jews, for a Jew, what does it mean to be a Jew? Well, if you're not one of us, and we felt this in Japan. There's a word that they use, you know, as soon as they see, ah, oh, gaijin. And it's not a nice word. It's like, you know, think of a, a racial slur. It means outsider. You're not a Japanese person. You're not one of us. And the feeling you get is, I'm not sure you're human. And of course, that's the way the Jews thought about the people around them. And so when it's describing in the New Testament, Paul says we are the true children of Abraham. We're the true Jews. He's undoing that kind of identity. That's why it was such a big deal to not continue to be identified as ethnically Jewish when you were Christian. Freedmen and slaves. Paul never challenges this whole thing overtly. He never says, oh, I'm against slavery. He just writes a little letter to Philemon and says, Onesimus is your brother. He's like a son to me. I'm ripping out my heart and sending him back. Now, I'm not telling you what to do, Philemon. <laughs> but of course he is telling him what to do. In other words, if you're going to be a brother to Philemon, he cannot be your slave. And of course, being a man is to be fully spiritual. It's to be human in that culture. This was the prayer I think that Paul is saying is forbidden. This was prayed in the synagogue every week. Thank God that he has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Can everybody say amen? Well the women in the synagogue at this point they would answer back thank you God that you made me according to your will. Paul says that prayer is forbidden in churches. Here is a hierarchical world in which ethnicity, religion, social status, and gender are the mode of identity. And Paul deliberately overturns this understanding in this prayer that he's saying it's, you, you, it's forbidden. All of you were baptized, reading from 327 into Christ Jesus. All of you have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so it's precisely the notion of a set cultural order. A law of nature. You know, this is just the way things are. That's being overturned. Now Paul will say, you know, obviously he's not saying, oh, we're, we're androgynous. Some people think this is why he's writing to the Corinthians. He may have said something similar. He says something similar in Corinthians. And they seem to be saying, oh, well, we'll just we'll, uh, become no sex at all. And he says, no, 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 that's not what I mean. He's saying that we no longer do identity on the basis of these binaries. I'm a Jew. I'm a freedman. I'm a man. Identity is through Christ. It's identity through an interdependence, not oppositional difference. Oppositional difference is a mode of power gained through dominating the other, in which authority to penetrate, to oppress, to exclude, that's forbidden in the church. Identity through difference, through domination, it's violence. I happen to believe that the New Testament teaches us nonviolence. And one of the ways that we can be most violent is in male-female relations. And I think this is, you know, in this sense, Paul will dub, he calls this system that we're all subject to the law of sin and death. That's the operating principle of the world. If we do not recognize that we're saved from the law of sin and death, we're going to misunderstand the deep grammar of the New Testament, the deep grammar of salvation. It gives us a reconstituted ethnicity. There's no Jews, there's no Gentiles. It gives us an alternative socioeconomic order. There's no slaves, there's no free. And it gives us a reworked orientation to gender. Now, N.T. Wright points out that he, in fact, uses a different word with gender, male nor female. The idea being he's referencing back to Genesis and saying that this is not the mode that we do identity. By being joined to Christ, it's through, you know, it's only this latter category. That's going to have an enduring ontological meaning in Christ in the church. So let me read the Ephesian passage again because I think it's key. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What's he talking about? Well he goes on to say this is a mystery. This is the mystery. This is the secret of creation. This is creation's purpose being worked out. Not simply marriage. It's certainly inclusive of that. He says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Image-bearing capacities are brought to completion in Christ. It's not a dissolution of male and female, but it is a dissolution of oppositional difference. The power of the law working in and through the degrees. You know, think of the idol scene there. The more separate, the more meaning the greater the desire. You know the one saying, the psychoanalysts, that they, the phrase they'll use, this is Lacanian psychoanalysis, 
do not give way on your desire. Why? Because in this understanding, desire is life itself. Paul is telling us, no, we're delivered from that notion. That desire is life itself. The separation is undone. That's the point here. That one flesh, there are no degrees of separation in the body of Christ. Continued abuse, oppression, and mistreatment of women in the church and in the name of Christ, I think, indicates misapprehension of the narrative force of Christianity. And the danger is there's a complete obscuring of the point, the meaning of salvation. So my conclusion. Gender problems are at the center of the human problem and salvation is depicted in this key motif as the completion of the promise of Genesis. The two shall become one flesh. Salvation is the fulfillment. It's depicted as the fulfillment of marriage. That it must mean male-female relations cannot be understood apart from who God is, apart from the human predicament, what sin is, the fall, and the manner in which we're delivered from that predicament. And so the role of women in church leadership or the relation of husband and wife, we cannot isolate these issues from the narrative sweep of Scripture. The story of fall and redemption is to be read as pertaining directly to overcoming authoritarianism, overcoming forms of subordinationism, overcoming oppression and alienation. In the world there will always be slave, free, male, female, Jew, Gentile. That's just the logic of the world. But where that logic seeps into the church, the question arises if it's truly following Christ. Gender, class, and ethnicity, they're not dissolved. You know, and Paul's not even saying that. But a different logic applies. He says this a very interesting way. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, as if not. Are you in this situation? Treat it as if not. In other words, these things do not bind you. They are not definitive of who you are. He uses a, another word here in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He says you can go by the letter of the law. And you know what letter there? It can just mean the Old Testament, right? You can go by the letter of the Bible, their Bible. But what does that do? Go by the letter and it kills but go by the Spirit, he says. And so we have to understand there's this grammatical shift from the knowledge of good and evil to the Logos of Christ. The Spirit gives life. And to miss this, and to miss that the letter kills, is to miss the transvaluation of Christianity. So there's, I think, undoubtedly accommodation behind male-female instruction in the New Testament. But I'm afraid Christian complementarianism is like the notion in apartheid. Separate but equal. Oh, that's racism. Understand, that's racism. And that will just always be racism. I'm afraid that that does not capture the New Testament understanding. The understanding focused as it is in complementarianism on these few verses 
it's missing the narrative force of the story of salvation. Paul commends a woman apostle. Did you know that? What's her name? Some people know. Why is it that one woman in the room said the woman apostle? Junia, right? In your Bible it might read Junius. What happened? Oh, they changed her name. Because they didn't want a woman apostle. He commends women evangelists. Women as deaconesses. To conclude that women are excluded from church leadership reflects commitment, I'm afraid, to the oppression. The gospel is overcoming. I'll stop there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.